I don't want a big old I just want to ride on my motorcycle Hello everybody and welcome. This is the Nokomoto Podcast, episode number 183, I think. We are coming to you from Nokomoto Podcast Network Studios Suite A, which is, well, I, well, I flubbed it, whatever. It's also Moto One Podcast Network Studios. <sighs> Let's see here. We are going to talk this week about MotoGP. We had our second round. We are going to catch up on emails. We are going to talk about the effect of motorcycle sound systems on motorcycle music. And we are going to do Best Worst Bike. And I think that's going to be a pretty good episode. Um, start at the top of the show here. I want to make a few little, uh, th- announcement thingamajigs. It's, you know, someone gave us a review the other day and then, um, I just noticed that we don't have an actual rating on Spotify, which looks a little weird. So I'm going to remind everybody it's been a long, long time since I've done a little drive on this, you know, it wouldn't kill you to leave a rating and review, whether it's Spotify or iTunes or Google podcasts or whatever it is, you know, we put a lot of work into the show. We make the show almost every single week. And if you want to join the Patreon, that's really cool, but we don't push it very hard. We don't hold any content hostage for money right? So would it kill you to leave a rating review? I don't think it would. So if you can go ahead and do that for us, that would be great. And you would be a hero like, I can't remember his name, but someone left us a review this week. Okay. And with that, I think we should just get into it because I think we've got a lot of show this week and we just need to start diving into it. Let's do it. All right. So let's start with best worst bike. You know what? Actually, do you want to just kind of lace emails into it, kind of like we did the motocross songs last week, Swigs? Or do you want to do that all as one great big thing? Uh, let's just do it all as one. Okay. Then we're going to start with Best Worst Bike. Here we go. So we have each chosen a motorcycle. One's going to be the best bike in the world this week. One is going to be the worst. We don't want each other have chosen. It's a surprise. It's just a fun way to look at a couple different motorcycles in a different way than you might normally look at them. So... <gasps> Send your angry emails to contact at nokomotopodcast.com. And yeah, you know, maybe you can, your content will make its way into corrections and emissions. Okay, Swigs, you have worst bike in the world this week. I do. Excellent. Are you ready to reveal it? I am. Okay. And the worst bike in the world this week is the Honda Rebel. What? One, two, five. Wait, there was a one, two, five? There was. So, but, okay. So, let's unpack this. So, the Rebel 250, great bike. It's not the, it's not the top of the mountain, but it's a highway capable bike. It's a very capable bike. You can you can do all the things you want to do on it that you'd do on a real bike. But it's this nice, cheap little thing 
It's great for learning on. It's cheap. It's endured forever. Well, it was an unkillable little motor. It was only like 17 horsepower, right? I mean... Right. But, yeah. But, okay. So, what do you get out of the 125? Now, this bike is 11 horsepower. Which... Is okay. I, for, for 11 horsepower is actually kind of really good for a one, two, five, four stroke. But it's a twin. Wait, what? Yeah. So you're, you're actually sacrificing a lot of torque to get that. Yeah. This bike has nine, not foot pounds, nine Newton meters of torque. This bike has less torque than our scooters do. Hold on, hold on. I because I'm thinking like, well, wait a minute. Like the the XR70, right? Makes like 80% of this power <laughs> as a single cylinder. Yeah. What, what's going on? That's a good question. Well, I, I imagine it's because it's um I don't know what the motor is, but I want to say it's some sort of world model motor from the turn of the century. Um, but yeah, so it's actually kind of good in the fuel efficiency and range capacity because it's got a two gallon tank and it gets something like 70 miles to the gallon. But that doesn't really matter because you can't go on the highway, so you don't need any range. Now, this bike still has a 57-inch wheelbase, so it's not a really compressed bike. It's still a fairly long rake, but it's also 100 pounds heavier than our scooters. This bike is 300 pounds dry, which doesn't sound like a lot, but when you compare it to any other bike in this category with this amount of weight... This amount of horsepower, like it, it's all, it, it's no good. Well, right, because what you're doing is you're going, well, okay, we've only got, what did you say, 11 horsepower? Yeah. Okay, we've only got 11 horsepower, but 11 horsepower has never felt so little. Whereas if you take the Vespas, 11 horsepower has never felt like so much. Exactly. Wow. Okay. So, so I, you're getting scooter power, but with none of the scooter advantages. Exactly. And it's not a small bike. I mean, it's it is a small bike. Well, no, it, it's, it's a, it, is a, it is a small bike, but you can't use it like a small bike. It's got a long wheelbase. It's still got to tip over onto its side stand. You can't just stash it like you can a scooter. Or any kind of mini bike. Yeah, you're not going to get away with parking on the sidewalk or anything. Yeah, it's a small bike with all of the limitations of a big bike. You're not going to be hopping any curbs with this. You're not going to be like you would with like a, a small little dirt bike. You're not gonna. You're not going to be doing any of those things. You're going to be riding around like a big bike. 
that can't go on the highway. Right. Yeah, you don't even get the advantages of it being a bigger bike because, yeah, you can put saddlebags on a Rebel, but not really big ones, right? Right. And you can't really put a top box or anything. I guess you can get a little front roll on it, but for storage, you're fucked, right? Um, and there's no windshield that looks appropriately sized for a Honda Rebel 250. They're all too big. All of them. Uh, yeah. 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 It's, it, you have to do the big bike. It things, doesn't but hold you can't go lot, on the yeah. highway and you can't do the small bike things either. Yeah. You also can't reasonably carry a passenger because it has the kind of weak, lib-wristed shocks that you would expect a rebel to have so yeah you can't you can't take your girlfriend with you you can't carry stuff you can't do highway speeds you can't do any of the big bike stuff but you don't get any of the small bike advantages either yeah Yeah. it's it's taken it, it it takes economy too far while still trying to do the cruiser thing. And in the end, nobody wins. Yeah, well, it's... So, one, two... I feel like every 25 years, maybe even 15 years, whatever it is, there's this cycle where people want to bring one, two, fives back. And one, two, five, two strokes are brilliant. And one seven five two strokes are brilliant. Like all those sub two hundred two stroke classes make a lot of sense, but not in four stroke. I mean, unless it's like a kid's dirt bike, right? Right. There's just it just doesn't make a lot of sense. But do you remember at AIM in twenty eighteen or twenty nineteen, people were walking around super excited that Suzuki had a GSXR one two five on display? Yeah. So, oh, you should totally make this. And Suzuki's like, yeah, yeah, yeah we're not making, we're not going to sell this here. That's you know. But they had a little thing that was like, oh, how interested would you be in a G? And of course, everyone thought I'm going to show everyone how different and progressive I am. I'm going to say that I would totally buy a GSX. XR125, you fucking liars. Every single <laughs> one of you. You're not buying a GSXR125. Fuck you. You're not doing it, right? And uh, just that displacement in a cruiser makes even less sense. At least a GSXR125, you could take to the track and you know have the balls to open up all the way, I guess, and and you know, lean the bike over or something. You could take it to like a go-kart track and lean it over and have some fun. You might be able to find some, you know, you might be able to race with like the 80cc two-stroke bikes or something like that. Yeah. There, there's something you could do. <clears throat> this has no usage. I think a lot of people also don't remember that like the old like 250 even like the old 252 stroke race bikes like in the late 90s they think oh it's a nice small little bike we should we should bring these small displacement race bikes back it's like yeah but that two stroke 250 still made like 87 horsepower like it wasn't it wasn't something that you would take on the road it was absolutely clapped out because you can do that with a two-stroke 
if it only has to survive for a thousand miles. Right. Now, I don't want to completely poo-poo the idea of 125s, because let's take something like the Hunter Cub, or the, the new Super Cub, or the Monkey Bike, or the... You know, whatever. But, yeah, but they're distinctly in a different class. Right. Those are, well, yeah, Honda calls them mini motos. They're kind of mini bikes in, in many ways. And they play to the strengths. They go, well, listen, we're not going to pretend you can do big bike things. In fact, that's the whole point, that you can't, so we can focus on the strength. Yeah, we want you to ride this across the lawn and on the sidewalk. Mm-hmm. And But also, <laughs> Honda's made this, this like, the Honda's 125 motor that they put in these mini motos is kind of the modern version of the old 70cc singles that they put in the Passport and the Monkey Bike, you know, all that stuff, yeah. right? It's, it's sort of today's version of that. It's a little unkillable, super reliable uh, air cooled one, two, five, four stroke, two valve that just you know, crushes it. And that thing, uh, was it the new, the new Grom gets like, like it's, it's like 9.7 horsepower out of a one, two, five single. And this is getting 11 with two cylinders. <laughs> like, you know, and the miracle of Honda's one, two, five, isn't that they're squeezing an insane amount of horsepower out of a one, two, five, it's that they have made it so reliable and manufactured for so cheap at the same time. That's the magic of Honda's current one, two, five. Not that it produces magical horsepower out of nowhere. Uh, This seems like it was neither all that economical nor powerful and somehow weirdly over-engineered for a small bike. Well, you have to remember, you know, a lot of the bikes that are singles today were twins back in the day, which is, you know, it's more of like a cost-cutting thing that they're doing today, going for them. I mean, they are bumping up the compression and to kind of compensate for it. But, yeah, this was, this is a weird mix that, I, I don't know where this where this model where this engine configuration works out well, but it definitely doesn't work out well in a three hundred pound cruiser bike. No, no, it doesn't. I mean, these are low to the ground. That three hundred isn't going to feel heavy, but three hundred's a lot. Is a lot of weight for only eleven horsepower. <laughs> Man, well, it's I, it's especially going to feel weak on that long wheelbase because you're not going to be able to flick it around like you can a scooter. Right. With those big wheels and the long wheelbase, it's going to feel slow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Shit. Okay. Cool. Um. I mean, not cool. I. <laughs> I never thought I'd be talking shit about a Honda Rebel. I, because you know you you rode Claire's um, new Rebel three hundred the other day, and yeah, were you had really positive things to say about it. Yeah, which it's was the, the best beginner bike that's ever been made. Right, which was the point I made about it like five months ago or whatever it was, probably longer. Which was yeah, okay, it's not the cheapest one. But everything about it is engineered to be beginner friendly, but also not. While it is like intro level price, it yeah, you can find three and four thousand dollar new bikes, sure. But 
they're not going to be as nice to live with. And that extra thousand dollars is going to equal what? Another 20 bucks a month payment. Yeah. It's well, it was just, it it was, it was giving you a very neutral bike experience, but just taking all the friction away. All the buttons were big and actually labeled in a way that you could actually, if you needed to, you could glance down and see what you were pressing. Like, Things like the horn were an actual like full size switch and not just a tiny little like I don't even know what to call it like a little Tylenol size button like yeah. hidden under the the other controls, um, like the clutch being super super smooth and really forgiving and extremely light. Yeah, and like how late with the, power the came widest on. friction zone of any like clutch yeah. on a single cylinder ever. And then just like how late the power came on and the rev range, so that like the bike would never get away from you. Like you did all the normal bike things, but everything was just simplified and made as frictionless as possible. Right, and you still get a toolkit, and you still get you know, well. The instrument panel gives you little extra things you don't expect, like the gear that you're in. You know, yeah, the gear indicator is a nice touch. Um. Yeah, just just things you don't expect to get at that at that basic intro level, and I, yeah, the super wide tires, just the overall balance of the thing, and that is all expanding upon things that the CB two fifty and four fifty did. This seems like not CB um, CA CA yeah yeah uh, th- this. This the one two five seems like it went in the opposite direction. It was like, hmm, let's give people so little power it makes it weirdly more difficult to ride again. Well, especially you're if you're always to ride on... every gear to the very top of the rev range just to keep up in traffic. Yeah, I think that's like a low enough torque and horsepower number that you will actually accelerate slower than cars. And of course, you're going to yeah. be driving it around town, and you're probably going to hit a lot of lights because you're not going to be on the highway on this thing. Yeah, and this was made in '95 to '99. Can so you it's imagine not like doing this is a from start. the '70s and there were a lot of Volkswagen, like slow Volkswagen Beetles around? This is an age of modern cars yeah. where everything's like 170 horsepower at least. Yeah, can you imagine doing like a hill start? with six foot pounds of torque like that's not gonna be fun i yeah i like i feel like the xr70 makes more torque than that i really do i'm pretty sure the the new the new uh honda the the navi makes more torque right and that you can just twist and go on yeah exactly yeah uh, yeah Mm. and that's a 110 single like mm. yeah i you know honda was known for beginner friendly bikes back then it's amazing to see how far they've come in in this because it's an area that no one has paid attention to who else has really dedicated themselves to making really excellent rider friendly bikes for for beginners uh companies have made bikes that are very simple 
but especially forgiving bikes, but bikes that don't like you because they like through through things like the dual clutch the various different automatic transmission configurations Mm honda's come up with in the past with um bikes that make um more power at the top end but it comes in slower in the beginning for you know make it harder for bikes to get away from people what they do with um yeah i guess when you really think about flywheels and things like honda and really goes for ease of use I guess when you really think about it, like even the new, even like the Kawasaki, like the nin, the new Ninja Four Hundred and the uh, and the R Three are almost more race bikes than they are beginner bikes. Yeah, they're very technical to use because you have to get, you have to make your gear changes very precisely at the right times to get the most out of them, and yeah, that you can you can be in the wrong gear very easily with them. I mean, it's not like they're intimidating bikes, but no, but yeah, but kind of in the way that a a, a, a Vespa PX one fifty is a little bit harder to ride than you would think. Mm. I, you know, I wouldn't let, I wouldn't be inclined to just have any dude jump off a Harley and be like, "Yeah, ride my Vespa." I totally trust you not to crash it. There's, would you really care if somebody crashed your Vespa? Well, not point? in the current state that it's in. <laughs> no, but. You, you know, when you set someone yeah. going off on a Vespa, you kind of have to give them like a five minute coach up talk. Like, listen, this is don't just be an asshole. This is going to be a little bit trickier than you think. It's not impossible. It's not even hard, but it takes a little bit more awareness about a few different factors. Yeah, there is the like a there is, twitchy. The, there is a little bit of like a two minute spiel. To get yeah, going. the clutch is really odd. Like, it's not what you're used to. And yeah and just things like there is a very very distinct false neutral between second and third and you're probably gonna hit it yeah but and even just like the way the rear brake and front brake interact is so different yeah um so you know i Mm. okay let's move on to uh best bike in the world this week ready let's do it okay and the best bike in the world this week is the 1980 Honda CB750F Supersport. We've talked about the CB900F Supersport before, which is an amazing bike, and anybody that wants to get one, I totally support that. They're super-duper cool. But I like the CB750F right now, and here's the reason why. Yeah, the 900F is cool, making like 10 or 12 more horsepower than this but this thing is still doing fine at uh about 75 horsepower it's about 500 pounds it looks almost identical to the cb900f it is a different frame and there's a couple other things about it but it's really close in look uh it comes in all the same paint schemes And it, but what it is, is a couple things. It is a better CBX is basically what it is. And it's a much, much cheaper CBX is what it is. And if you want a really cool retro, sort of classic retro-ish, whatever bike, this is your best retro classic bike, like actual classic bang for buck right now. 
hands down. Because, I will say, oh, uh, yep, this does have the one. Th- the thing that I like the most about this generation of bike is these, the naked race bikes with the way that that kind of square but like streamlined tank flows into the side covers. So people were calling these the Goldwing tanks. So they start first started appearing on um, these things in like after the Goldwing. So like Honda. CB750s in like 1975 through 80 something like anyway they um the I don't I don't people just say call them goldwing tanks I guess they kind of look gold like goldwing tank esque if you look at like a 1975 goldwing and you look at one of these mm-hmm. tanks okay there's something there but they're really not the same if you put them side by side like if you put my goldwing next to dad's 77 cb750 you're like okay sure it's not the rounded off tank of the 60s but it ain't it it ain't a goldwing tank but whatever right. okay People that just want to be haters and pure. Oh, every every CB seven fifty sucks unless it's sandcast. Shut up, right? Like, <laughs> shut up. Um. So cool things about this bike. Uh, the power is cool. Like I said, it's um fifty seven foot pounds of torque. Pretty good. You know, a lot of these seven fifty displacement bikes were still doing like you know forty to fifty foot pounds of torque around this time. This is the uh, double overhead cam CB750. So people have hated these for a long time, but the, but people are turning the corner on them now. So now is the time to grab one of these. The Nada value is $2,700 for excellent condition. Now, I'm sure that hasn't really caught up to what things have been doing in the last 12 months of used bike prices, but I cannot imagine spending more than $4,000 on one of these right now. Eight years ago, these things were like a buck a CC. So if you think, oh, I can't pay three and a half thousand dollars for one of these right now because they used to only be seven hundred and fifty dollars. Well, you're an idiot and you're never going to own anything cool. Buy one now before they're seven thousand dollars, because guess what? They're CB 750s and all the cool CB 750s have been bought up. Okay, cod used to be an unedible fish. Right? Yeah. And now it's a super expensive fish. Okay? At some point, people realize, oh, we can't just eat sailfish and marlin every day anymore. There's not enough of them. I guess we've got to start the like, eating cod. And that was in, like, the, the 1800s. Okay? The, it's just not a reasonable thing that you can just put your sights on having a 1969 CB750 anymore or a 71 or even a 74, okay? You're going to have to do something else. Like the world's going to have to move on, okay? All of you know, you know we have to move on to different fish. And this is this is the next one, okay? It still has say, the stench uh, of 80s price tag on it. But it's got a lot of 70s coolness. We've got those cool Honda things like the double horns up front underneath the headlight. 
I just like all the cool 70s Hondas had. All right. We've got the cool 70s Honda gauges and the round headlight. We've got we've got the. Um, uh, the kind of blank VHS tape logo uh, decals. Okay, those are very <laughs> 80s, but I love those. <laughs> I do too. Uh, but what has what was absolute pricing death for motorcycles a few years ago now starting to become cool? Comstar wheels, mm-hmm. and these are the super early Comstar wheels where they've got like the brushed aluminum on the sides, but the painted insides. Yeah. So these are kind of like phase two of the Comstar wheels. Like my Goldwing's got the the very first year of them. And even you have to admit, like they're pretty cool. I mean, look at this, this, this poster of the CBX behind you. Comstar wheels. I like the five spoke Comstar wheels. When you see like the four and the three spoke Comstar wheels. Were there three spokes? Or maybe not. Maybe that wasn't the com. Maybe that wasn't the um, the Comstar wheels, but there were early like mag wheels that were, they were like three and four spoke and they looked horrendous. So what but, I really like about the Comstars, especially these, these early ones is they're not, they're still, you still need tubes in a lot of them, but I, they're, they're not like um, single piece wheels. Like they're, they're, um, they're like bolted together and whatever. Mm-hmm. But as a result, there's this cool look where uh, each of the spokes is actually split into two. I don't know. It's, it's just, you got to just look at a lot of pictures of them, but they're starting to get their own really cool classic look. And these used to just be death for the cool factor on motorcycles. It was like, nope, we need 90 sport rims or we need spokes and there's nothing in between. Well, tastes are changing. So um, what else have we got about this? We've got the super cool kind of 70s-esque ducktail race back on the fenders here. So people didn't want these era CB750s forever because they didn't have a chrome fender. It was like, oh, my God, how am I going to turn this into a cafe racer if I can't just take off the chrome fender and put um, a little race cowling on the back? Oh, my God, I can't buy anything that says Honda with the letter CB in it if I can't at least entertain dreams of making the world's greatest cafe racer because everyone needs to know that I have the greatest sense of seventies, like Isle of man retro style that no one else, everyone else makes wrong choices, but I make the right choices. If I, I've built the best cafe racer in my head 37 times over. And now it's time to realize that in the real world, except I'm never going to actually pick up a wrench. Right. Just get those dreams out of your head. And I feel like a lot of us have a lot of us have left those stupid cafe racer garage build dreams behind. And we just want a motorcycle that fucking works. So what you're saying is that they haven't been mutilated. These have not been mutilated. Exactly. So, yeah, it's uh, it handles better than the CBX. It's lighter than the CBX. It's got a very similar top speed to a CBX. 
the engine. It's essentially it's it's a CBX engine, but it's missing the outer two cylinders. Is what it is. Mm. This is the CBX motor. This this will have interchangeable parts. I'm sure. Um, if if it's not exactly, I mean, it's very similar to the CBX motor. Like this was made alongside the CBX. Keep in mind. Mm-hmm. Um, it's yeah, it's it's reliable like any other Honda CB750. It's it handles. It's fast. It revs up high. You know, it's got like a ten thousand RPM redline or nine and a half or whatever it is. It's um, but yeah, but above all, it's cool. And it's dirt fucking cheap. Everyone keeps asking, like, well, what what are the cheap, the cool cheap bikes right now? Like, we used to be able to buy CB350s and CB750s. Guess what? You still can buy cheap CB750s. Just different ones. Okay? And this does not have the uncool stench of Honda Nighthawk on it, either. Right. So yeah, I, I, the big money is all in the CB900Fs right now. By big money, I mean like $6,000. But, you know, uh, with inflation and everything, you know, $3,500 for a cool retro sport bike like this, uh, pretty good, I think. Yeah. yeah, I like it. Okay. So let's see here. Do we want to um, take a break or roll into the next topic? Uh, let's take a quick break. All right, let's do that real quick, and we'll be back in a moment. Okay, and we're back, and we're here for what probably isn't the final part, but is at least going to be the last part for a couple weeks or months or something on our motorcycle music series. And what I want to talk about is sound systems. So, let's see here. We've got to get in the Wayback Machine. Well, let's get in the Wayback Machine just for two weeks first, where we talked about last week how there was a moment where motorcycle music turned left and right, you know, and diverged. We had our dirt bike music, going very lo-fi, going uh, PC speakers, going VHS, going TV speakers, right? And the kind of DIY engineered sound that suited that. So the other end is around the late 90s, early 2000s, we start getting for the first time really competent motorcycle sound systems now they existed before that wait what year like late 90s early 2000s now yes like so uh uh ditch has his 81 goldwing with a sound system that's good for 81 but it's not it's it, it, it lacks a certain pizzazz right it you can listen to stuff on it cruising slowly around neighborhoods, but it becomes kind of useless really quickly. It's yeah. not it doesn't really realize the dream of a motorcycle sound system. Well, you've also only heard like seventh hand cheap audio cassettes through it. 
That's so. not true. Well, okay. I, I, <laughs> I did buy Ditch for Christmas and his birthday, a series of Christmas and his birthdays, a bunch of really excellent cassettes for it that were in pretty good shape. I mean, his, his bike's uh, cassette collection now includes um, the Pretty Woman soundtrack. Um, Kenny G duo tones, the album we learned Kenny G can play two saxophones at the same time. Um, it, uh, it, um, or two notes of the same, whatever it was, uh, it, uh, uh, he's got, um, let's see, um, Huey Lewis and the news Four, like one of the best albums of the eighties. He's got uh rock set self-titled, um, <laughs> I got him some other stuff too. Anyway, really great stuff. Roxette, that's a that's a definitely an artist that I don't think anybody has heard for like twenty years. Well, they were like the arithmics with an edge. Like, <laughs> <laughs> there was a lot of those weird like British like duos with a bunch of um, uh, like studio musicians behind him at the time like it was all about british sort of like singer songwriter duo so there's like rock set there's the pet shop boys there was um the arithmics there was there were more of them but it was a lot of just like yeah two two visionaries and then a, a bunch of studio money behind them and rock set was one of the most hilarious and awesome but if you haven't listened to Roxette, their self-titled album. It's great. It's all bangers. Like I it's great. I mean, it's so cheesy. It's so dumb, but it's great. Anyway, we're diverging. So, um, anyway, the, yes, motorcycle sound systems go way back. Like there, like there are uh radios designed to fit into Vetter Windjammer fairings from the early 70s, in fact. But these are all missing a certain thing, right? They like there there's no trope of a guy in 1987 blasting music on his Harley Davidson at a stoplight. But there sure as shit is from 2005, right? Yes. Right. So that's what I'm talking about. The the moment we noticed these guys with these obnoxious bike sound systems, it's really it really doesn't exist in a meaningful way. So I think like yeah, even like the I don't think it was even really an issue as the systems got better on the gold wings. Because I think there is something of the Goldwing mentality where they wouldn't really act that way in public enough for it to become a thing. But when the Harley started doing it and the Harley started getting XM radios, that's when it really kicked off. Yeah, Goldwings are a lot more about just quietly crushing miles than being seen. No, but yeah. what? No, but it, 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 I think. The the real turning point was Sirius XM on Harley Davidsons. Yeah. So right. So so yeah. Early two thousands, we start seeing these systems. <sighs> okay. So we've got to get a little bit sciency on you, but <sighs> almost everyone listening to this podcast will remember that at some point in the the late 90s we started seeing a lot of cheaper home stereo systems 
with a million bajillion buttons all over them with little EQ slider things, EQ adjusters on them. And the peak of Kenwood, the peak of Kenwood, right? (laughs) And the most evil of all buttons that any stereo, any portable music player can have the bass boost. So what you should know is that if you buy an expensive stereo, you should, you just want that, that EQ line to be flat in a perfect world. The best sound system just produces a flat EQ. Yes. You just, well, it's not that it's a flat EQ. It's that you want the one-to-one like recording to output like you right. want, so you it, want doesn't, it, ma- yeah, it you doesn't yeah it doesn't bias match- it in any way yeah you want it to match real life yeah if you take any of those cheesy stereos with a million buttons on them the best possible sound quality you get out of it is just by setting them all to their center positions right it just you don't want any bias on it at all uh so yeah, the, the the very fact they put it on there is just so you can fuck it up, basically. Uh, okay. And then the bass boost button is so dumb because all it does is jump the volume and cut the high end. Now, why did all these things even exist? So it used to be that recordings had volume dynamics in them. There would be parts that were quieter parts that were louder it it's a creative decision how you want to mix that how you want to put it in which parts louder and which parts quieter but even the just total the overall gain on the track up or down whatever you want to mix it to but somewhere in 90s in the radio when basically when am died and everyone was listening to FM and they could have stereo and all this stuff. Eventually got to this point where they just noticed that, hey, if your song just comes on louder in people's car stereos or on the stereo at work or whatever, your song was going to get noticed a little bit more. So what they started doing is doing this little thing with digital compression where they squashed the sound essentially. So all the parts were squished down and everything became the same volume, and then they just boosted the volume on the recorded track. This is why if you listen to things on um, YouTube or something on your Bluetooth speaker, from track to track or from from video to video, the volume jumps around wildly. Recordings have their own volume to begin with. It's not just the volume output of your device. So somewhere around the late 90s, just almost as a rule, everything lost all its dynamics and just went full-blown, insane compression, completely 100% boosted volume. Can't, Can't boost anymore. Just the absolute peak output it can do without distorting on the track itself. Now, this does a couple things. First of all, it makes it sound okay to maybe something approaching good on any crappy stereo. 
but it does eliminate the possibility of it ever truly sounding excellent. It's why it's one of the things that purported the myth that vinyl sounded better. It didn't. It's just that their recording techniques were better back then or they had they had more morals back then they would give they would give <laughs> tracks room to breathe and have real dynamics in them so yeah but it was it was more of this adaptation of everyone adapting to you know essentially shitty fm radios in cars and yes and portable radios and things like that and like well mall speaker systems uh-huh. Basically just all, you know, once once FM really took off, but everything was still public. You kind of had to ad- adapt to that. And it's that adaptation that kind of fucked everything up. Right. Now there's another thing too. If you have a speaker that's just fucked up and worn out, it's harder to notice it if you're listening to something that has had just insane amounts of compression and gain boost put on it. Like, like it's true. Just, just play this podcast on a speaker that's fucked up and, you know, rattles a bit, has that crackle on it. And then listen to something from 2004 and you'll be all of a sudden you'll be like, Oh, I, I can't hear it anymore. You know? Um, but that comes at a cost and that cost is dynamic range. So, why do guys with these motorcycle sound systems listen to the music that they do? The answer is, it's the only thing that can possibly sound okay on those sound systems. So, if you're mounting speakers to a motorcycle, you're limited by many things. One, the size of the speakers. They, they could only be so big. There's only so many places to put them that make any kind of sense. And also, it's only really like in the last 10 years that we've gotten any good at making like compact bass speakers of uh-huh. any kind. So there's that. There's the, the these speakers have to be weatherproof. These speakers have to be somewhat... Um, they've got to be dustproof for one thing right and also they can't use too much power but fortunately volume is one thing these systems can achieve because if you're going to turn electricity into different energies right the uh, heat is the most inefficient like if you're just trying to turn electricity into heat you basically hate electricity <laughs> and if you're but if you want to turn it into light that's not so bad sound turns out we can do pretty well so the volume's not a problem we've got all this stuff where for around this time as well people became obsessed with pumping up the bass on everything and the reason is that everything actually sounded quite terrible. And so pumping up the bass became synonymous with good. And as we said, the bass boost really only worked by increasing the volume and cutting the high end. It so was eventually real, yeah, when I was in high school, it was a really big thing to just go buy like a 200 watt bass speaker, put it in the trunk of your car 
and change nothing else about your sound system. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, right. So, so yeah, just eventually loud just became synonymous with good sound as well. So eventually these systems were able to achieve loud and they were able to achieve the quote bass boost, right? Which isn't yeah. really boosting the bass. And to a degree, I kind of understand why that happened. Because everyone before just had super awful tinny audio systems, unless you had money and you had you could buy like a hi-fi system at home. Like everyone did just kind of have terrible sound once, you know, recordable music became feasibly portable. But it's kind of like starving it's like starving a cat and then just after starving it nearly to the point of death just like tearing open a whole bag of like a 10 pound bag of food and leaving it on the floor. Like everyone's mentality has been messed up on this and everyone just said, well, we can hear bass. Bass sounds good. I haven't really heard bass before. Give me more bass. I I gotta have more bass. Right. So the music that these guys are listening to, you'll notice it basically starts at Kenny Wayne Shepherd and it ends somewhere around uh, 2012. You don't really hear any music after that. And so the reasons for this is this is basically a decade, decade and a half of music that was heavy on the bass because there's a lot of new metal that falls into this into these uh, criteria. So it's got to be music that is one some sort of rock slash aggressive music. Two, it has to be compressed within an inch of its life and then the the track volume raised to maximum. Three, <laughs> it has it already said it has to be bass heavy. And um yeah, it's so like what falls into these categories, right? It's shit like corn. It's shit like puddle of mud and disturbed and all that shit. And that's why those guys are always listening to that fucking music at stoplights. That's why they always pull up in their fucking whatever green flame slammed to the ground with hydraulics, crazy uh, you know, 30 inch front wheel Harley Davidson with the crazy speakers. And you know, they've rehearsed this scene in their mind. They're like, I'm in my own movie. I'm going to pull up next to this minivan and I'm going to press play on my sound system. And everyone's going to be like, is that the fucking opening bars to freak on a leash? Right? <laughs> <laughs> like, like they think everyone is just like whoa this guy is making a scene but what everyone's actually thinking is hold on let, let me look a little bit closer like does d- like uh, does he have a rat tail like <laughs> i haven't heard this music for i don't know how long is what everyone is thinking is like, his wallet on a chain is his wallet on a chain yeah is yeah uh, yeah, it's weird. It's really weird. 
And, but that is exactly why it is the only music that falls within it. Right. It's why these guys pull up and you just hear it's been a while since I said a baby. Right. Or whatever stupid song it is from 2000 and whatever, because it's compressed. It is boosted. It is bass heavy and it is aggressive rock. And there's only this little window of time that really supplies that music. And that is why I, it's gross. It's weird, but they're not going to stop listening to that music anytime soon because nothing else sounds right. If, if they try to listen to almond brothers or something like that, they're going to switch it because it doesn't deliver the down low punch that they're hoping it does because that music just wasn't recorded that way. Yeah. And well, also, yeah, once you get into the wind, you're just going to lose all the top end and then it's not really going to deliver. And you can get the bass out of it, but if you do get the bass out of it, then either your speakers are going to start peaking and on the, on the high end, or you're going to cut the high end off completely. You can't actually listen to the whole song. Right. So, I mean, you know, this is great news for Avenge Sevenfold fans, but for the rest of us, there's just there's we're never going to escape this horrible. I mean, I feel like that music is my generation's disco. It, you know, we we I on behalf of everyone who <laughs> was like 14 at the time, I apologize. I'm sorry we spent money and supported this. I I can't tell you how sorry I am on behalf of all of us. But oddly, the two previous generations of rock kind of work a lot better on things like um, in helmet. Um, sound systems yes where already the bass was basically pulled out of the mix because right. <laughs> yeah. we have it, it, it there is somewhat of a similar problem with headphone speakers although the problem there is that because you can only fit whatever you can shove into your helmet you can only have drivers that are so big and They've gotten a lot better than they were, you know, like 10 years ago. But you can't have all the range. And so they tend to be pretty light on the bass. Well, I think the next ge the next generation of like Senna type stuff should come with the option that the drivers have ear cushions like like the the headphone sort of cans that we're wearing right now have. Do they just need like a cutout in the back of the helmet so they can just like pound the bass right into the back of your skull? No, I, I think just simply like there are the little cutout cavities in the helmets, yeah. which was great, like so much better than yeah, like my my other helmets before, but just the ability to opt in or out of headphone cushions that really truly go around your ear, right? Mm -hmm. That you can get sized for you and stick in there. Should they do them inflatable so that like you can get it on and then pump them up? Well, I mean, there's so much wind noise. Now, if you're doing something like you're wearing a helmet and then you've got like uh, a buff or something around your neck and a chin skirt to pr reduce some, some wind 
and then cushions for like you know over the ear cushions for what you know, it'd be like um it's like it would be like putting a cooler inside a refrigerator <laughs> right <laughs> it's the ultimate in insulation the way you know. <laughs> But you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I, I think that's really the only place it can go to increase those. Because the only other option is to just get insanely overpowered drivers that are just going to damage your hearing. Yeah. Insulation is the only way to do it. I think. Uh, but yeah, so so basically, yeah, if we if we want to like continue down this road of sound systems, like the 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 new sound system is in the helmet. And that's been a lot of podcast stuff. I mean, hence, you know, this show and others that has been. Yeah. Well, that's um, especially true because um, because of those, those whole systems were born out of, you know, early you know, radio comms. And now they've gone Bluetooth. They were always kind of built around that spoken voice frequency range. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, it's it's almost like um well yeah, cuz they they're built to firstly just to talk with other riders. Yeah, you're right. Um so yeah, I mean what once you get back into, you know, like once you start messing with your Senna rig or your Cardo rig or whatever, like I figured out that if I wear um like a neck gator buff over my ears, and I ha- and now I figured out exactly where to push it, like put the, the 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 drivers inside of the helmet, and I figured out how to reduce wind noise as much as possible. And I've also figured out that oh, it's to my advantage to be wearing this this gator, like whether it's hot or cold. I've I've got mine to a sound that's pretty good these days. It's not as good as walking around, you know, in these headphones, but it's not that far off. And so I don't have to crank the volume insanely loud. I don't have to put it full volume to hear things. I've got some of the tinniness removed. I've got, you know, I've got things set up pretty well. So I can listen to most anything in my headphones. So so in a way, there's almost no such thing as motorcycle music anymore for me. It's just whatever I want it to. And especially with the ability to hit the phone button and just ask Siri or whatever to play whatever I want on a whim, right? Now I'm writing and I'm just reminded of a song by what I'm doing. And I can just hit a button and ask the the sky to play that song for me. And it does. And then... You know, on top of that, Apple Music will just create a whole nother playlist based on that for me. And it's great. And um, it, it's it's like the best possible version that radio could have been back in the day. You know, when you it, mm. it's it's somehow I've 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 started just letting the play like the auto generated playlist go and go and go. And I, I don't know, I'm, I'm almost like I'm missing those days that you couldn't choose. You just had to like flick radio stations was the best you could do because you just learned to be more content with whatever happened to be on. Um, yeah, I don't know. Um, let's see. 
we're at another well, we've done 25 minutes of talking about motorcycle <laughs> sound speaker systems <laughs> and we haven't even gotten into like different brands of them like different types like i kind of thought we would talk about some of these super cheesy cheap ones that are basically just bluetooth speakers that you mount to your handlebars now have you seen these do i want to oh yes yeah. Well, the first thing you're going to think is we need to put some of these on the dirt bikes, right? (laughs) So, (laughs) well, okay. So, you know how, um, you know, on a dirt bike, you have the the big padded rolls that go across the crossbars. Mm -hmm. So there's now a whole set of like sub $200 Bluetooth speakers that mount right there. Oh, wow. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> so it's everything that 55 i 55 bucks yeah it's everything oh. that i just talked about in motorcycles uh, sound systems except now it's even more basic because it has because it's mono it's not even stereo okay i was on amazon but we gotta go to alibaba here right <laughs> Uh, but like Kurakin or Kurakin or whatever they're called they make one for like 300 dollars <laughs> you know <laughs> And, and like they they literally mount just like like uh, dirt bike crossbars do. It, it's a crossbar with a Bluetooth speaker built around it, which lets you know just how shitty the battery life must be because there's not that much space inside the device itself. Um. Yeah. Uh, and then there's other ones that mount kind of like like drop turn signals do. Mm-hmm. or drop mirrors or bar ends there's like bar end speakers <laughs> why that, yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's a terrible idea i know but just anywhere that you could like screw on or clamp on the speaker they you, make it now can you get like frame slider speakers or something <laughs> like why like turn signals like, frame slider speakers <laughs> i i know what like the the basic senna now is so good Uh, because i got like the the absolute cheapest basic one for for claire to put in her helmet and it's excellent it it is it is it is beyond what the most expensive systems were years ago like it doesn't have a huge number of extra features but it has all the features you need or want, you know, like remember what everyone's talking about? Like, Oh, you've like, don't buy a system now, man. You need to wait for the mesh to come out or you need the, the mesh version too. And then promptly everyone like didn't use mesh, right? Oh, you've got a video of it up. Yeah. Look at that bad boy. (laughs) (laughs) Why? Okay. Um, I mean, it just looks like it's going to rattle off of your bike in a couple minutes, right? It does. There's no way this provides any kind of decent volume. How much? $29. (laughs) I don't see a problem. I think you literally just like solder it together. And then when it's when you're done with it, you just hacksaw it off. Right. Because I'm not trusting like whatever <laughs> mounting system they have there. <laughs> um, 
But yeah, like uh, people are putting these on their bikes. Obviously, they're like, well, why would I spend eight hundred dollars down at Car Toys or whatever? Like, I could just get for thirty dollars on Alibaba, right? So again, like what you're not going to be able to hear jack shit on these things, these these Bluetooth speakers just mounted to your bike, right? So it's again, it's going to have to be music that is like the max volume on the track is already there. Yeah. It, mm. Good stuff. Yeah. Okay. Let's take a quick break, and I think we can come back with MotoGP. Yeah, we'll come back and we'll talk GP, or maybe even emails. We'll see. All right. Okay, we're back, and we're going to talk about round two of MotoGP this year. It was Indonesia. It was the first MotoGP race in Indonesia in, what, 24 years, did they say? I was something like that. It was at least 20 years. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, wasn't this supposed to happen in 2020 or something and it got canceled? Or am I making that up? I have no idea. I thought there was something where it was going to happen, but, you know, COVID and things, whatever, and it got, like, dropped off the calendar. I seem to remember that being a news story, but I could be making that up. But in any case, those fans had been waiting so long for this race. It rained, and it appeared to me that they didn't give a shit. The place was packed. And if I'm not mistaken, Indonesia is a country that went pretty hard on all the COVID regulations, too. So, I mean, there were still, like, masked people and all that stuff, but people were packed in, people were in the rain, and there was a huge delay because of the rain and they stayed in the stands and they were singing songs and they had like marching bands on the track in the rain and they were making the most of it. I have never seen MotoGP fans so stoked for a race like this one. Uh, so I enjoyed it for that, but also uh, I enjoy a rain race in general, and I especially enjoy a rain race within the first seven rounds. I love any rain race before we go to Europe and even in the first you know, few, because we don't have a heated up championship yet. It's not something that's going to spoil or make a question like what could be at the end of the season. It's not like in the middle of the season when we're just starting to really get invested and kind of pick our favorite for the season. It's just a fun thing to mix it up in these early rounds. So I like it. I don't like it when there's three rain races in a row, but you know, we had hardly any rain races last year. Mm -hmm. It's kind of been like two years of being really light on rain races. So I was into it. Um, uh, yeah, interesting results kind of all around. Well, no, Moto3, Foggia won, and um, I'm going to call it early. Uh, I'm going to go early money on Foggia this year. He's kind of the best of what's left. I Not that Foggia fair, yeah. ever sucked, but I think he's just the clear – I think he's just going to be the clear standout talent this year. He's just got the experience. Well, they, there's a lot of people with a lot of Moto3 experience, but – It's going to be him or Garcia. Um, I mean, they're, they're only, well, it, I mean, nothing really matters at this point, but 
Garcia usually comes in pretty strong at the end of a season. <clears throat> we'll see. Um, but yeah, I mean, like I don't see Mino or Guevara or Toba or Anju really putting together a strong season. I've seen more flashes of brilliance, I feel like, from Foggia than any of those other guys in past seasons. So I think yeah. it, it just feels like his year. And mm-hmm. this race was kind of a an example of that because moto three was dry. Yeah, it I mean, but well, I don't know in a way this year, this round is another one that kind of doesn't count. Kind of talk about that for a sec. Yeah. So, well, for starters, there's no data because nobody's raced on this bike in like three generations of bike. You mean on this track or on this track? Yeah. Um, and then, well, not only that, the track's in such bad condition, it's basically going to be a different track by next year. Yeah, there was a lot of carnage on turn two. Um, and I, I don't think it was that turn. Um, actually, we'll, we'll say that for later. But yeah, a lot of people went down. A lot of people got ride through penalties because of that, because so many people were crashing that people crashed while other people had crashed in sessions. And got penalties for it. Uh, all around, in terms like if there were if there was a championship at stake, everybody would be pissed. Would be super pissed about the the condition of the track. Um, they said they fixed it, but they kind of fixed it like Coda got fixed and like Silverstone got fixed, and apparently it wasn't all that great. And like Turn Two was disintegrating over the course of the weekend. Well, yeah, they, they, they announced early, like even before Moto three started that they were shortening all of the races to quote, preserve track conditions, which meant the tracks literally wearing out as we're riding on it. Yeah. Like, <laughs> but I mean, I don't think, and, and that doesn't mean like, fuck this track. Let's never come back. It's well, with all the turnout, Surely they'll they'll have an opportunity to say, "Hey, look at how Let's many people reinvest." Yeah. Let's reinvest. Let we know we're going to get this again, this kind of audience again. So let's let's put the money into the track. Yeah, if there's this kind of interest after 24 years and with heavy rain, uh, yeah, it's a no brainer, or it should be. Yeah. So I'm going to say that I think the true start of the season is has still not begun. The true start of the season will be in Argentina. So we can't really divine any long-term trends out of this race or get really a feel for what the theme of the season's going to be. Uh, but yeah, it was a nice, fun little race. A little bit ridiculous, but that's just kind of what it was. Uh, Moto2. Who's our winner in Moto2? Remind me. Uh, Vietti. Vietti, that's right. Um, so Moto2... Oh, no, sorry, I lied. Um, I was on the wrong page. Uh, Moto2 was, uh, Samkhet Chantra. Oh, yeah, sorry, yeah, 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 it was, okay, so yeah, track that has no data with weird conditions, and, and again, we've got uh, a wet race, or, um, dampening conditions as Moto2 came on. Local boy makes good. What a shocker. It was actually Ty, I think. Well, but, yeah, but, but he's yeah. the closest they've got. He is, quote, yes. the local favorite. Southeast Asian, good in their wet. 
shocking. Right. Yeah. But still good for him. Right? Yeah, it was awesome. Uh, what I said about Sam Lowe's proved to be totally true in this race. He was mm-hmm. just protecting third, fourth place the whole race. He is the new gatekeeper of relevance. Um, yeah, there's not much else super interesting about Moto2 for this week, but I mean, you know, uh, fun. We got a little bit of a improvement from Acosta. He did end up in ninth, but that was after, um, that was in the wet after starting, I want to say it was like 14th or something, and he had a ride-through penalty for a uh, yellow flag violation. Oh, wait. There actually were a couple more interesting things. Uh, Cameron Bovier finished 10th with, I think, in 11th place, Joe Roberts right behind him. Uh, flip it around. Joe Roberts got 11th, and Cameron Bovier got 12th. Oh, okay. Well, at one point they were in ninth and tenth, and I thought they finished tenth and eleventh, but it must have, I must have tuned out for the last lap or so. It must have fallen back. Yeah, it'd be nice to see them getting top tens, but uh, you know, for a random for a brand new track, just to see them kind of keeping pace and. Well, our British rookie from last year, what's his name? Uh, Quadraro's buddy, um, Jake Dixon was the early leader in this race. And I think he, he was got the pole. pole as well. He exactly. was the pole, yeah. So that came out of nowhere. I would love to see Jake Dixon keep pulling some surprises like that, keep it mm-hmm. interesting. Unfortunately, he crashed out. Yeah. But uh, we're, we're seeing something happen there. Um, yeah, so GP was by far the more interesting race. And I, 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 it kind of occurred to me the majority of wet races that have happened in the last like four years have been flag to flags. This was just a torrential downpour start to finish. It dried out a time. It didn't. No, it didn't even really dry out that much at the end. I mean, they started developing kind of a dry line at the at the end, but like not really. Um, it's. Like uh, the last rain race we saw was when Brad Bender, you know, brought it home with essentially no brakes, just couldn't get any heat into his brakes. And um, just that that crazy move of not switching to wet tires, you know, like so many of these rain races are won on a strategy decision. This was a wet race won on just how good are you in the wet? Yeah. So that's always fun for me to see because uh, the grid's already competitive. Anyone can win. And then you get the equalizer of rain on top of that. And it's just a really great, a really great uh, show of skill. So our winner was, um, what was our podium on this one? It was... Um, Oliveira won. That's right. Quadraro second. Yeah, Quadraro fell back. He started strong fell back and then then got into his groove and clawed it back. That was impressive. He really turned on the speed. I know it's a cliche, but a couple more le- no no, Oliver was pretty far ahead. But um but he was but Quadro was rocketing. Yep. Who was third place? Uh Johan Zarko. Oh yeah. Zar- w- can we talk about Zarko's beard? Yeah, we should. well okay so it's worth noting because um 
so Zar- so okay. So I've been watching. I've been having uh, Claire watch. Claire's been watching MotoGP with me, right? And she's just not familiar at all. But I, she's been staying interested because you know all the riders are just essentially millionaire playboy models, right? I mean, when I showed her, you should have seen her. Like I showed her a picture of Ianone, and she was like, "Give me your phone." Right, <laughs> start swiping more pictures. She and I just like saw, she was like whispering things to herself, like that jawline. Oh my god! But <laughs> and then I was trying to find the picture for her where he's like lifting weights with a hard on, right? <laughs> and, um, but yeah, she 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 already is is into Quadraro and his uh, his open chest look and all of that stuff, right? And then she just couldn't get over Zarko's. She's like, I hate that beard, right? She focused on Zarko's beard and um, uh, uh, um, what's his face, um, uh, uh, um, Ducati rider, um. Jack Miller. No, no, <clears throat> no, no. Other, other young guy. Um, uh, Bagnaya. Ba- uh, um, yes. Yeah. yeah. Ba- uh, so bag, she's like, so, uh, Bagnaya had like a, like a heavy five o'clock shadow, but like his mustache is a little heavier than the rest of his beard. And she's like, uh, she, every time, like before the race, and it was a long pre race, she was just <laughs> like, just, she, she almost got physically ill. Every time she saw Zarko's beard and his mustache. So actually, here's something we do need to cover. And maybe somebody knows the answer to this, but this has been bothering me. So what is it with Aaron Kinnett's wooden bow tie? I I I haven't seen this. How have I not seen this? Okay, I'm going to try and pull this up in a timely manner. But so... Aaron Kinnett has a very interesting look. He's kind of got the the short hair, the pedo stash. Yeah. He's got the neck tattoos that I think go into full sleeves. Right. And goes right up to his jawline. And then in um in interviews like post race and post qualifying, he's been sporting this weird like wooden bow tie on like an elastic band that like he puts on okay i'm gonna pull this hang on yeah yeah i I, i've not seen this this... i how how have i not noticed this because this sounds like the sort of thing that i would not be able to not see i'm gonna pull it up it's in qualifying bow tie um i mean i'm finding okay um are wooden bow ties a thing like the internet's giving me a lot of this really yeah i'm finding a lot of wooden bow ties on the internet here this is like kind of a thing apparently like like super stiff like quarter inch thick. Yeah, I guess so. I guess this is like a. Okay. Um, weird. 
Huh. I, I have no answers. Um, I still haven't found a picture of Kanet wearing one, though. Where where are we going to find this? Anyway. Um, oh, wait. Here it is. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's exactly what I just saw. This is just a fashion trend that's that hipsters are doing right now. I guess it's like an anti bow tie. It's like it's like my bow tie is not real. Like I obviously don't know how to tie a bow tie because my bow tie is wooden. I guess. But okay, all right, interesting. It's just what the kids are into. Like all right, I okay. didn't know if it was like just to be so jarring and weird as to distract from his neck tattoos. But I don't know. I like Cadet. I like his style. I, I, you know, and I'm not like a, a neck tattoo like kind of guy. But like uh, on someone like Aaron Cadet, it just makes a lot of sense. You know, he's a professional <laughs> motorcycle racer. Fuck it, right? Um, anyway, I was just gonna say that I I don't know. I don't have the data to support this. But every time some like one of these racers makes a big move with their facial hair or like dyeing their hair or their haircut, it usually goes with a drop off in results. It is some sort of professional crisis usually. Yeah. Right. I mean, look no further than, um, than Lorenzo's off seasons. Right. Yeah. It, it's, it's usually not a good sign. So it's interesting that Zarco podiumed with the beard. But uh, Bagnaya, not that great, but it's also a wet race, so it's hard to cut. We need to start keeping track of this, is what I'm saying. I mean, I know there's people hard at work with, like, COVID therapeutics and other things, but this is something we really, really need to be pouring resources into. We need to find the correlation between, like facial hair and gp results yeah 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 it's like global warming and piracy right <laughs> we need to we need to track this okay so uh other interesting things about this race um uh bastianini was making a real big charge at the end as well everyone was kind of like oh like the points leader is way at the back that's no fun but then he came charging up so he just found speed. Um, so my theory with Bastianini is I don't know if he's a serious contender, but is he MotoGP's quickest study right now? I think so. Because it's a brand new bike and there's brand new conditions. It's just I think he's sort of the guy that can just handle like whatever weird thing you throw at him the best right now. That's what it looks like. I think we need another season of results out of him to really confirm that, but that's certainly how it feels. He's just sort of like, I'll just deal with whatever weird shit you throw at me. So I, I, I expect two at least two Bastianini wins this year, just based on that. I mean, if he can pull that off, then, I mean, there's probably a Pramac Ducati seat in it for him, at the very least. I would be shocked if he's not Pramac Ducati next year. I, yeah. Um, I mean, they could eat. I mean, Jack, they're not going to lose Jack Miller 
but or Bagnaya at this point for the factory team. But yeah, if Zarco doesn't do much this year, I could see Zarco getting kicked off and um, you know, Zarco's well, Zarco KTM's not gonna take Zarco back. That's for <laughs> sure. But Zarco could go team Grassini. That would be a that that's a switch that would make a lot of sense. Because mm. Zarco kind of, you know, he knows that well, Ducati. Yeah. It's it's still the first two races, and neither of them are real. But right, we'll, I, it's we'll just see. it's just fun to see. Though I, yeah. I'll bet I will predict right now that at the end of the season, Bastianini will have better results than Zarco. I think there's a good chance of that. Okay, uh, do you have any other takeaways from this race? Uh well, there is just one thing we should probably talk about, which is Marquez's horrific high side. That oh, took him out of the race. Yeah. See, this is part of that thing where I was saying Marquez is never going to be Marquez anymore. In years past, he could have dusted himself off from that. But I, you know, is it is he going to be out for three rounds again on this? Are we going to see him in Argentina? I mean, I've been pushing back on this, but like, I think this is kind of a fairly. Uh... This is a fairly, uh, what's the word, discreet incident that may have massively swung it in that direction. Uh, this is like a Pedrosa crash. This is like a two-stroke high side. Yeah. This is a no electronics two-stroke high side. I, I didn't even know GP bikes could high side like this anymore. I mean, we've seen it happen with, like, Pedrosa and Lorenzo a couple times. Well, we've seen it happen, like, six times with Pedrosa. But Pedrosa's, like, 5-2. Right. I, uh, yeah, it was just a brutal, brutal crash. I mean, I it sounds like <clears throat> I wish bad things for Marquez. I really don't. But... Like, you know, I hung on faith... For, to for a successful or relevant Rossi season longer than I should have, and I think you're c- keeping that flame alive for Marquez, <laughs> like conversely, and it's just he's too injured now with these things. He can't walk away from them like he used to. Like he he is he is becoming Pedrosa levels of broken. Yeah, I I mean, I think it, it's weird to think of it this way since like he he hasn't he's only been in the sport as long as I've essentially been watching. But it's weird to think that he might kind of start be getting too old. And I mean, he's not too old right now, but like if he keeps getting hurt like this, by the time he's actually fully recovered, he may be too old. Like because th- it's just taking him so long to recover in so many seasons. Well, there's that, but it's more that his whole strategy was to crash. <laughs> I I think the cost of that has come up. You know, his yeah. whole strategy was to find the limit in practice by crashing basically there was a season where he did it for like what all but one race just crash every saturday and then one on sunday yeah 
Yeah, or Friday or whatever it was, but just find the limit and then be able to dance on it. And he just had no fear of crashing, no fear of finding the edge, no fear of pushing it that far. And yeah, guess what? Like you pop joints out of place, you tear tendons, you you just do. I mean, how long did it has it taken for my shoulder to recover after I crashed the Vespa, right? Yeah. And that wasn't like a full tendon tear. That was like a half tendon tear. Like it it's it's brutal. You know, I know he's got the best doctors. And I know he's super fit and they probably have him like sleep in hyperbaric chambers and and give him growth hormones and like you know, do all the stuff, but it catches up at a certain point. You just can't do it any you know, like Yeah. And it's it's getting there. It's getting there like they it, it was at the point where they were just like, yeah, Marquez is out. It wasn't like, oh, his shoulder popped out again or what? They're like, we're just not even going to talk about it. He's just not here. And I didn't even bother to follow up on any news stories about what the injury was or anything. I I feel like it would have come up in like a news feed for me or something if it was being widely reported. But I don't think Honda really wants to show the chinks in the armor that much. So there we go. Yeah. Um, there we, that's pretty much it for this round. I feel like it wasn't super exciting, but I mean, it kind of, it was fun. Mm-hmm. Like I said, I like a rain race. So um, you've got the emails pulled up, right? I do. Let's get into some emails. What have we got? All right. So we're going through the, uh, the archives here. <laughs> yes. This is going to be a big catch up on unread emails. This is from back in September, and this is from Owen. And uh, this is in response to the the GT name. He says, hey guys, I agree the GT moniker should be used in sport touring machines. The new Yamaha Tracer 9 GT is another example. The Multistrada comes in a touring GT spec as well. Speaking of Ducati, in a a few episodes back, you guys were wondering who owned Ducati. They are part of the Volkswagen group under Audi. I suspect that's why you see Audi Sport as a sponsor on the works Ducati bikes and MotoGP. Um, it's probably where all the radar technology came from on the new V4 Multistrada as well. Glad that you guys are still doing the progress not and not uh, trying to convince everyone to shave their balls or buy insurance or talk to a shrink. Yeah. <laughs> So let's see. Um, that was in response to the Suzuki uh, GT that was released back in September, which I'm still, I still want to see. Get we need to find a way this year to get somewhere like a test ride on one of those. I'm very curious about this bike. Um, yeah. As far as that, I, I. It seemed like last fall, everyone, like for a second on the heels of that bike, was like, oh, is everyone going to release a GT bike? Uh, or something specifically named GT. I don't think that's fully materializing the way we thought or hoped or it got excited about for just a quick second. Because there was definitely three weeks where, like, Every motorcycle news website had something about GT bikes on it. And then it just quickly evaporated. But whatever. Um, yeah. 
Okay. And now we've got one from Colin who sent this a second time in July of last year. Wow. Okay. <laughs> uh, and he says, uh, it's been a while since I sent an email. Hopefully it's another quality one for you guys. In episode 156, the one before Pete's concussion, you guys were briefly struggling to determine Ducati's ownership. It's another, yep. Uh, and then we see, uh, he says, on the racing front, here's another interesting point to aid your pro Aprilia case. On the Race MotoGP podcast, one of the hosts pointed out that the entire net profit of Piaggio Group is less than the Red Bull KTM's MotoGP budget. This only further illustrates your guys' case in episode 157 uh, that Aprilia is punching above their weight when it comes to the places they're finishing in with the little funding they have. When it comes to bike modifications, I can appreciate your guys' position that the engineers and designers know what they are doing and are balancing many factors when it comes to getting a production bike out the door. I generally don't spend any money on performance upgrades, but let's not forget that you have an entire segment of the podcast, which is in part dedicated to pointing out the absolute train wrecks, dumpster fires, and disasters that this same group of venerated professionals slap together and try to sell to the general public. I think it's fair to say that they are not above criticism. I swapped out my exhaust on my KTM 690 Enduro for a different reason. The stock catalytic can, uh, can is practically a nuclear reactor. A long day of riding, especially on trails, can get the stock exhaust so hot that it has been known to melt the neighboring subframe plastics. And this is without any fuckery done to the engine. Uh, the Yoshi slip-on sheds a little weight, stays cooler, and I will freely admit it sounds a little better. Not obnoxious, just a little more bark when you open the throttle. I won't lie, this was a factor in my decision, and I won't pretend otherwise. Here is another modification I think is worth mentioning because it can actually help. A common addition to many KTM models, uh, the 690, the 990, etc., is to swap the stock uh, thermo switch for an aftermarket one that has a lower temperature threshold. Most will close the circuit and switch the radiator fan on 30 degrees sooner, which can make a difference if you take your bike off-road into gnarlier terrain where you're not getting a lot of airflow over the radiator. Many people also add a second fan to further improve cooling. It's a $60 part that keeps your bike from overheating and I imagine only helps the oil uh, in better condition and reduce wear and tear. Keep up the great work. In the case of putting an aftermarket exhaust on a KTM, I almost wonder if it's that effect that KTM knows that roughly six KTMs exist where the exhaust hasn't been replaced, like in the world. So they just put on a nuclear reactor of an exhaust going, you know what? It's cheap and no one's keeping this shit on the bike anyway. I wonder if they just completely just phoned it in on their exhaust systems because they know everyone's replaced it. Just a little weird theory there. And as far as the radiator fans, I guess I'm always going to be a little bit more forgiving on modifications that are for very specific use cases. Yeah. I think just the general, the box said 10 horsepower thing 
is super dumb. But if you've got a very targeted reason, like utility reason for it, I think that makes a lot more sense. Yeah. Yeah. But also, you know, like we do have to come up with content nearly every week. So sometimes we're just going to trash modifications that people make because it's, it's, it's no fun to be super positive about everything. Right. (laughs) Every once in a while, it's just good to go. You know, all you guys with loud exhaust, fuck off. Well, in fairness, there's a lot of easy targets out there. That's true. Yeah. All right. And so here's one from Brian who says, uh, as far oh, so this is also back in July, it says, uh, as far as your girlfriend's Rebel, I think it's an awesome bike. I did an iron butt ride on my wife's BMW 310 GS, averaged 75 to 80 miles an hour, 1250 miles in 22 hours the bike never used a drop of oil so as far as uh little bikes can't tour that's bullshit yeah uh that's one hell of a ride he said over 1200 miles in 22 hours 1250 miles in 22 hours yeah that's almost exactly what i did on my last iron but it was like 1240 something miles in like 23 and a half hours that was on a goldwing though so i mean the g the 310r that is that a single oh 310 gs oh gs oh the all the baby gs oh okay that would for some reason i had the 310r in my head i was like that is one hell of a it's okay better on the gs but still still a naked beginner bike yeah it, it it that's a bike that's got some vibration to it that you're your butt's going to be numb like more than it would be on other bikes. So hats off to you. That is one hell of a ride. Of course, of course, little bikes can tour anything that can do 60 something miles an hour can tour. But yeah, I'd be curious as to what he took with him on that little bike. That's always my thing about a tour is like, cause the, the nice thing about taking a road trip on the gold wing is I can take a full toolkit with me. Should something happen? Uh, I mean, I probably took like 50 pounds worth of tools on the, on the last iron, but I took, I got, I got wrenches of every size. Um, but okay, cool. Um, gee, we need to dig more into the small BMWs as well. Those, those BMW three hundreds. We need, we, that's another one we need to ride. That's, that's a whole engine thing that we haven't, we haven't gotten into. Like, cause we know we like the, uh, the KTM slash Husqvarna, um, 300 motors. Yeah. Uh, we know we love those. I, I'm, and we know like the Honda version. Well, you say 300, of those. like the, the, the 390 slash 401. Right. Yeah. But, yeah, so and we know we like the Honda 300s, but for a completely different reason, we need to get our hands on a small BM, a small BMW. Yeah. All right. What else we got? Uh, hang on, I gotta switch over to the Gmail. Okay. What have we got in Gmail? Uh, actually, here's one I can just recall from memory real, real quick. 
actually I can't because I'm totally blanking on the name. Um, um, I'll get there. One sec. Um, <laughs> do I need to read a Patreon message while you look for it? No, I got it. Okay. So we got an email from Phil, and I'm going to have to call Phil out here. Oh, this one. Okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so Phil sets an email and a picture of a Craigslist ad for a Ronin. And he's asking if we think this is cool or trash. Um, which is interesting that he's asking us this question. Uh, so the bike in question is a 2009 uh, Ronin which I think we've talked about these on the show before. Not for a long time. Right. So essentially this bike started life. This is a custom boutique little bike that was started life out as a... A Buell XB12R, I think. Yes. Um, And we happen to know exactly who owns this bike which is actually the people who have listed it in the ad which is imperial sport bikes down in lakewood um now phil is asking us if we know anything about this bike if we think it's cool or not which is interesting because we know for a fact that phil has seen this this bike in person and not this model of bike this bike this was sitting right next to the aprilia rs660 at IMS. Right. So, um, yeah, this bike has been for sale since before then because it is ludicrously expensive. And I guess we have to talk more about what the road is. So I can't remember what shop it was in Denver, but some local shop here, some custom builder in Denver got together what was it were there like 43 ronin what was the what was the number i thought it was like 70s i can't remember whatever it it's is not there important. historically there was this exact number of of um ronin right which is some sort of japanese military position or something uh or a ronin thing. is a samurai without a lord there we go. Well, there were 47, 47. So there were 47 Ronin or something. It's this whole thing. It's this historical thing, right? So they made, they converted 47 Buells into all slightly variations of this, this custom bike. And so every Ronin is numbered and named after the actual Ronin from history. Right. Yeah. And so they have this weird leading link front suspension, they retain the Buell frame and the motor, but it's otherwise heavily customized. And I, they're they're cool, but they're not like as cool as people thought they were at the time. The, these these things made the rounds, uh, uh, you know, twelve years ago on the internet. And they they also have a very distinct look. That's kind of out there and made to be like very noticeable like um kind of like a lot of confederate bikes were yeah there's a sort of confederate look to it you're right um so i'm sure these bikes are fine to ride i know the performance is going to be great i know lots of things about it are going to be great but they are being sold or people are attempting to sell them for prices like 50 to 75,000 dollars 
And that's kind of an ask for a bike that a lot of people have forgotten about or don't remember or really care about that much. I mean, who knows? Maybe the 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 reemergence of Buell as a brand is going to put a little bit more stock in these. I find it a curious investment. I mean, they're cool if you really have the money to burn. I don't see these climbing in value anymore and maybe possibly even becoming worth less at some point. So they're not like super collectible in that way that there's some advantage to buying one. It's like if you can afford a Ducati 916, it still makes sense to spend $20,000 on a Ducati 916 because at some point it shall be $40,000 if it's not already, right? I don't know that that really makes sense. Like, I don't know if if the value of a Ronin will even rise with inflation at $75,000. Yeah. So you've really got to just love it for what it is. And I know there's only 47 or whatever. And, and so I guess it's easy to authenticate or whatever, but it's a curious investment to me. Like if I could buy one for 10 grand, would I do it in a heartbeat at 50 to 75? I don't know. I bet we'll start seeing, you know, these being sold for less at some point. I don't think they'll ever be cheap. I don't think you'll lose your ass on one, but I don't think it's the sort of thing where people traditionally like what bike collectors would normally get. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe Jay Leno would get one of these cause they're just really out there. Yeah, that's a possibility. Like the kind of person who can just buy a bike and really doesn't give a fuck about the value. Just buys stuff that he wants. That's what this is for. Um, yeah. All right. What else we got? Okay. We got one from Eric and he says, uh, Hey guy, let's start from here. Actually. Uh, he says, uh, after hearing about it on two occasions, I decided to bleed my brakes and you guys were right. Super easy to do yourself. Sort of. The cheapest brake fluid around me was actually at the Indian dealer. So I went to grab some and while I was there, asked them to look for the size of the nut on the bleed valve which they said was 10 millimeter worked for me since that was the smallest wrench I had. So I went to grab some tubing and get to work. Only the nut wasn't ex- actually 10 millimeters and the tube didn't fit. Not wanting to leave. I stupidly thought that with uh, my small adjustable wrench and some pipe tape on the big tubing should do the job. 30 minutes later and a lot of frustration, uh, thir- 30 minutes and a lot of frustration later. And I decided to quit and go back to the store. Turns out with the right size tubing and a wrench that stays on the bleed valve, it only takes 20 minutes to do. Don't worry. The 10 millimeter still went to good use opening beers. I needed to cool off. One of the main things I hate about my scout is the two brothers exhaust. The last owner put on, which not only attracts the wrong type of people to say, wow, that motor sounds great, which really it's just loud and burns my pants because it sits too close to the foot pegs. I don't have enough money to replace the whole exhaust, but is there anything I can do to keep the pipe from melting or trying my pants? Keep up the pod and not uh, trusting the dragon's advice on which size wrench will work for a job. What a dick. Yeah. So Colin, that's why we mock custom exhausts right there. (laughs) Right there. Uh, Yeah. I mean, 
uh, get some really good boots. That's all I can yeah. think. Um, I, I'm wondering because the exhaust on the Scout is pretty low and flat. I wonder is this exhaust routed differently? I have no idea. Um, I feel like those pipes kind of go straight back more or less. Or maybe I'm thinking about the exhaust on the Victory Octane. Let's take a look here. Let's get up a picture. Because, hmm. Uh, Indian Scout. He said it was a bobber, right? Um... Yeah, these exhausts just kind of go straight back. So it's got to be the front. It's got to be the exhaust coming off the front cylinder that just comes out weird. So, but then, but they surely didn't replace the headers, right? Maybe they did. I don't know. Um, But more or less, these exhausts just kind of come out and go straight back. So it's got to be the header pipe. So if someone... I'm thinking, are these one piece? Yeah, this is all like a one piece exhaust. If you replace this, you've got to replace the whole system, I think. And it looks like on the original bike here, there's a bunch of guards that come over the exhaust. So yeah, I think you're fucked. I think where there would normally be an exhaust system that has a little heat shield over the top of it next to your leg, uh, you've got a custom system, which does not have this. So yeah, your leg's just going to get cooked. Um, that sucks. Uh, you could try exhaust wrap. That's the only thing I can think. So if that, you, that are thicker boots, yeah, you know? a, a combination of thicker boots and exhaust wrap. I mean, hey, it's an aftermarket exhaust anyway. Like, what do you fucking care, right? Um, so exhaust wrap is a process. You're gonna have to like buy a bunch of exhaust wrap, and then you've got to like get it wet, then you've got to wrap it around, and you've got to like tie it off with wire and shit. If you really take a lot of time and you pull the exhaust off and you wrap it really carefully, it can look really cool. If you do a shitty job, it'll look shitty and it'll probably leave stains and marks on the exhaust when you take it off, if you do a shitty job of it. So if you're going to wrap your exhaust, take it, take the exhaust off. It's not that hard. Well, I guess I don't know how hard it is to do on an Indian scout. There's a lot of shit packed in here real tight. But if you can reasonably get off the exhaust without removing the radiator and a bunch of other crap, uh, do that and just try wrapping it and see where you get. Um, and then maybe in the meantime, try to save up for an original exhaust that has the, the the heat shields over it. Kind of, I mean, yeah, that's that's all I've got for you. Okay. Um, anything else, Swigs? Uh, yeah, we got one from Dale who says, 
Uh, hey guys, just wanted to get your opinion on something. A friend of mine puts on a ride, usually in July, that uh, loops around Flaming Gorge in northeastern Utah. Uh, rock the ride for kids. Um, would love to see you guys there meet at uh, Beers, Harley Davidson, and Vernal. Uh, last year, I rode my 2003 Suzuki 800. Really enjoyed the ride, but I struggled to keep up with the strong Harley influence that attends this event. I also own a 2010 Ducati Street Fighter 1098, and I'm considering taking that this year. The organizer says, of course, bring whatever you like to ride. Um, ride your truck if you want, but don't. Uh, but I don't want to feel out of place. Any suggestions? Love the podcast. Keep on not crying. Oh, you have to take the Ducati. Especially... Wait, so this is the 1090... Is this a... Yeah. The street... Oh, this is the 1098 Street Fighter. Yeah. Yeah, you have is, to take that. This is a very obnoxious bike. Um, I normally don't this approve is of the Ducati Street Fighter, but in the context of riding it uh, alongside Harleys, I heavily approve. Like, even not in the context of... Oh, shit. Sorry. All right. Ah. Sorry, I <laughs> hit buttons on my sound effects. Even even outside the context of a group of Harley Davidson riders, the Monster 1098 is already an, an obnoxious bike. The Street Fighter, or the Street Fighter, yeah, yeah. So this is like you, yeah, you have to do it. Yeah, there was this weird thing from like 2016 to 2019. Where all the the Nate like the Street Fighter bikes got into this look of like super tiny pointy headlights, and this is one of the ones that like does that look the most. It's it's pretty weird. Well, it was that, and just because it's such a ridiculous motor to put in that bike, like the bike's got a bit of a beer gut as well. Yeah, it's really heavy around the middle, but like the the headlight and the tail are super small. It's kind of you know, it's kind of like Samus Aran from Metroid Prime era. Like like the helmet's a little small and like the the chest armor and the arms are like super beefed up, right? There's yeah. a deep pull. <laughs> Metroid Prime. Um it's a little out of proportion, but whatever. It's an insane looking Ducati. And, you know, at the end of the day, like the Street Fighter is not my favorite, but Ducatis should be a little bonkers and out there. And yeah, and you're not going to have any trouble keeping up. And at some point, someone's going to be like impressed at the sound it makes and the horsepowers and all the things that it does. And you got to do it. Um, I'd love to show up for this ride, but ooh, the timing is going to be tricky because we're going to be going to you going to Utah like two weeks before that. And then we're going to Columbus, Ohio, like two weeks after that and making vacation time work or a long weekend or something is going to be a little tricky, but it's also hard to turn down a charity ride. That's not that far from us. Hmm. I'll have to stay tuned on, on that. But yeah, you have to take the Ducati. You have to. Um, what else we got, Swigs? Uh, so we got a couple. Um, shoot. Ah, oh, I'm not logged into Patreon. Whatever. 
Um, I'll do I'm logged into Patreon. Let's see here. Uh, we got one from Colin. Yep. It was a book recommendation. So uh, I put a post on the Patreon. I'm reading this book of Japan's Motorcycle Wars. We will at some point soon have content based on that. Uh, but he's recommending another book called Stealing Speed. It's by Matt Oxley, and it covers how two-stroke engines made a resurgence and eventual dominance of racing until recently. Um, yeah, touches on how technology was developed in wartime in Germany and then picked up by East Germany and... Motorfile manufacturers, Suzuki. Anyway, ticks a lot of boxes. We would enjoy it. Yes, um, we should. I am. I I I. Last week we didn't put out an episode because I was moving, and also my progress on reading halted last week. So, actually, the last two weeks. So we'll see if I have, if we have any time to get through that, but we'll definitely keep that in mind, Colin. Uh, so I do have this one. I think it was the last one I want to read. Um, it's a series from John who brought something up that I didn't really piece together before, but makes a lot of sense. And he's saying, uh, I just learned, I just listened to 182. You are right. There is a lot of old mannishness to motorcycling that doesn't carry over to dirt bikes. Every time I talk about street bikes with somebody, I'm usually swimming upstream against old myths and misconceptions, or I get buried in at-gap preaching or just plain safetyism, whereas dirt bikes don't seem to have the same walled-off thinking. It's more about doing what works and, ha and having fun. Uh, and then he said, um, uh, at least you have a pretty good handle on what it takes to be cool. I still don't understand why mat the matching jersey and pants sets are cool. Um... Back when I played paintball, you wouldn't be caught dead in matching gear. Which, I think this is more of a racing thing. And just bikes, everyone trying to distinguish themselves. And I love it purely from a perspective of, um, of just the complete opposite of the fully blacked out look. Or right. trying to be like trying to be a badass, like you just you should just be as bright and colorful and ridiculous as you possibly can. Well, that's what I achieved. Yes, you did. I, I <laughs> um, but I think the point that I found really interesting is just the fact that because dirt bikes don't really have all the baggage of um of either the Harley crowd or you know the BMW crowd or the sport bike crowd and, you know, going either of those directions, it does make sense to make street bikes that look like dirt bikes, even if they have no dirt utility whatsoever, which is something I have railed against for a long time, but being able to make a whole series of bikes that don't have any baggage is kind of a cool thing. You know, especially if you're looking at something like the, um, uh, like the, uh, like the NC750. Right. If you go for this weird sort of dirt bike styling to it, or, you know, a little bit of the kind of like off-road styling, you might as well do it if you're just trying to not look like 
anything else that comes with a lot of baggage. Okay. So are you saying maybe we want to see something that's that looks like a CRF 450 but has a totally different motor that's much more set up for the street? Like it's the same frame, it's the same suspension, it's the same wheels, it's just a motor that makes power completely differently that's suited to to riding the highway versus riding on dirt. Well, to some degree, that's kind of what a supermoto is. Well, they keep the same motor. No, but I, I well, I, I don't, I don't think you could do it quite that way because, um, well, just because the bike is so slim and there's so many compromises made to be to being good on dirt. Uh, I mean, the if you look at something like the Dorso Duro or. Um, I guess the 650L is kind of that bike, isn't it? Yeah. Or the DR. Yeah. Yeah, this bike already exists, the DR. Well, also kind of like Hyper Motards kind of do this as well. Okay. Yeah. Um. Mm. I don't know. Yeah. But, I mean, I think you can, you can get away from it a little bit. But I think even just like the mud guards and the plastics even if the bike is nearly twice as wide, like you can still kind of do that sort of thing. Um, I mean, it's not that you have to, but I just don't like fake functionality. Mm, yeah. It bothers I, me. It shouldn't bother me like it does. I'm just going it at does. it from a perspective of that. It kind of makes sense that there were a lot of bikes that, sort of looked like they were off-road bikes that were absolutely not off-road bikes. Yeah. A lot of that kind of makes a lot more sense to me now from that perspective. Oh, and just ditching all, yeah. Okay. Ditching all pretense and it's just like, all right. I yeah, I, if you're going for a younger crowd too, I yeah, these are these are a bunch of kids that have just been riding 250s and 450s and like, hey, here's now your street bike for it. Yeah, it makes sense. We there there is a lot to be said that we're probably in exactly the wrong time and place for a lot of those bikes. We're only really now just coming into a place where we appreciate what they are and have been. I can see that. I still don't like hypermotors. <laughs> okay. All right. So we're over two hours now, just a little bit. So we should wrap this up. All right. So this was episode one eighty three, right? Or 184. I want to say 184. Okay. Anyway, and we're going to just, let's just get out here really quick. It's just uh, stay safe, stay tuned, keep fighting the dragon, and let's hit the outro. And I don't want to die. I just want to ride on my motorcycle. Go. Go. 